You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. for a family here in the church. Wayne Hamlin's wife, Miss Carol, very faithful folks. She went home to be with the Lord last night. Deb and I were over at the house uh, late in the afternoon, and uh, last night uh, she passed away. So keep Wayne in your prayers. And uh, as I say that, on the way home, Ross and Brenda are on their way home. Uh, Keep them in your prayers. Uh, They should be here. I think they come in tomorrow. But I'm not uh, certain about that. And our group from Nepal is back, and I don't know. Uh, where'd y'all go? Where'd he go? He may be down there helping his wife, uh, Kathy, um, Rob. Uh, so we're glad that they're back home. They had a great trip, I know. And I, uh, let, me, let me just say something about these uh, ladies that put all of this stuff together. Uh, for Hannah and Jamie and, uh, and Kathy as well. You don't know how much work they do. And uh, you need to just thank them. And I'm excited about it too. I don't know why everybody keeps saying, why, why, why do you celebrate Halloween? Listen, let me tell you, do you not understand what the day is? It's Reformation Day. That's what you celebrate. <laughs> That's what I celebrate. I'd love to lapse into what the Anabaptists were doing about this time, but I won't do that. That's where we come from, I believe, personally. It's not Halloween. It's Hallelujah. It's Reformation Day. That's what tomorrow's all about. And uh, we celebrate just reaching out to our community and loving on our community. So there are some of y'all that are probably visiting this morning. We're glad you're here. And uh, I am in a series in Exodus. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, look with me. Exodus chapter 2. We've been five sermons in Exodus 1 and 2. We're about to get out of the second chapter. So by the time of the rapture, we should be through the end of the book of Exodus, about the time Jesus shows back up. Well, uh, Exodus chapter 1 and 2, let me just kind of remind you and give you somewhat of a time framework. Those first two chapters literally cover 400 years. Uh, you go all the way back to the death of Joseph, you, and which is the way Exodus opens up. You've got about 400 years that are covered here. It's amazing how fast the Holy Spirit will move at times in Scripture. And then watch it how he slows down. Chapter 2 is broken into two parts, two 40-year parts. The first 40 years of the life of Moses. And then the second part of chapter uh, 2 is the second 40 years of the life of Moses. And then when you get to chapter 3, through chapter 38, one year. One year. Now, when you look at Scripture, it's just fascinating how the Holy Spirit puts all this together, and that's where we are. Now, let me take you back to chapter 1 and show you what begins uh, with these Hebrews, chapter 1, Exodus, verse 13. 
the Egyptians compel, they force the sons of Israel into labor rigorously. Now the word there, rigorously, literally means harsh or cruel. They put them under very harsh, very cruel labor. Um, You remember Moses finds an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. That was very common. That was not anything uh, unusual going on. This was a hard, rigorous, cruel labor. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks. Now what the Pharaohs were doing, they were building cities at this time. And so they forced uh, these Hebrews to make all uh, of the bricks, all of the stones that would go into these cities that were being built. And at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors, you notice how many times labor is being used there? It's as if the Holy Spirit is trying to get it into your head. This is harsh labor, terrible, cruel labor, really hard, difficult labor. All their labors, which they rigorously imposed on them. There's the word a second time. So you get the picture there, and it's all the way into chapter 2 and verse 23 that we read this. Now, chapter 2, verse 23, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt had died. Now, you've got another Pharaoh that dies. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because their bondage because of their bondage rose up to God. Now the whole concept there is this this cry literally is a shriek if you look the word up in the Hebrew. It means to shriek, to scream. That's the word sigh. To scream. Um, in, in the English, uh, have you ever heard of the word uh, halloo? It's an old English word, and it means to shriek, or it can be used to bark uh, or to scream out. That's literally the word that is used here. These people are shrieking. They're screaming because the labor is so intensive. Their lives are so hard. Now, the funny thing is this. I don't know why they haven't done this before, but you've got almost 400 years that pass before we read that they cry out. Now, I have looked at this thing as many ways as I can. Verse 23, I've read it, of course, in the English. I've looked at it through the Hebrew. I can't find that the word prayer is used anywhere there, but you have to just guess that this was directed toward God at this time and not toward the Egyptian deities that we know that the Hebrews had fallen into the worship of these pagan idols of the Egyptians. And and so something must have taken place, brought them to the point of where now they begin to cry out evidently toward God, and it rises up. The cry comes up before God. I don't know why it is we are so hesitant to turn to our God in prayer. I don't know why we wait and go through so many things in so much difficulty before we ever turn to the Lord and we call out to Him. Uh, But we do that. Maybe we don't do it for 400 years, but we do it in our lives on a daily basis. We try to work everything out ourselves. We try to tough it out. We try to have a stiff upper lip. We try to go through and push through all of these things. And only when it becomes incredibly unbearable do we ever think of calling out to God. But now listen, even though the word prayer is not used here, 
and we're just going to have to guess that their prayer now was directed toward God. I want you to watch in how God responds. This is a sermon in itself, but there's more to come, by the way. So here it is in verse 24. It is audibly. God hears audibly. So God heard their groaning. Now, if you look at this, the, the word used here is not cry, but it is groaning. God audibly hears their groaning. A groan is far deeper than um, far deeper than a cry. Do you remember when Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians and he makes the statement, he says that the Holy Spirit will intercede for us with groanings too deep, uh, too deep for us. Well, that's the whole concept here. A groan is something that comes down deep from the inside of you that speaks of a woundedness or a hurt or a deep sorrow or a grief it's so deep that it is hard for you to put into expression. It's hard for you to express in language. So God heard just as God hears you. In fact, there's some of you that God's hearing right now because deep inside your heart is a groan that is there uh, that only God can hear right now, and he does hear it. But not just audibly. Look at this cognitively. It says, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the whole concept of remember here is not that God just recall. Oh, yeah, I recall that. Uh, you know, you get your memory jogged, and yes, gosh, I do remember that. I remember that uh, what I said. I remember that what I promised. That's not the concept here. The, the, the memory here is that which you keep in the very front, we would say, in the very front part of your brain. We keep that memory right here in front of us. It's not something we have to go back and retrieve and bring it back into memory. It is something that is ever before us. Whatever is going on in your life, you can be sure it is in the front part of the mind of Almighty God. I think y'all have had too much candy already. God keeps you on his mind. He doesn't have to go back and recapture that. But now look at the third thing that it says here. It says that God saw. Verse 25, visually, God saw the sons of Israel. That's, that's a fascinating thought that God sees over and over through the Word of God, we're constantly reading that God sees. In fact, let me tell you uh, that God saw is used 155 times in Scripture. Let me give you one better than that. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, seven times you read the words, and God saw, and God saw, and God saw, and God saw. Seven times you read that. It's almost as if that was put there it seven times to remind us of the perfection of the seeing of God. There's a little verse over in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 16 that I remember from years ago preaching this passage when Asa prays to the Lord. Listen, uh, and then he 
tries to handle things in his own way, God comes to him through the prophet and says, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. I don't know if you ever stop to think, but the eyes of God are never off of you. He never, he never blinks. He never takes his eyes. He never moves his eyes off of you. He sees every single one of us here. He hears every groan out of every troubled heart that is here. And then he comes and he finally says this, God took notice. The word there in the Hebrew is the word yada. It means to know, but not just to know in a casual way. The word yada in the Hebrew means to know intimately, the way a husband and a wife know each other. So God is intimately aware. How many times have you said, I don't know why I did that, or I don't know why I said that, or I really don't know why that thought popped up in my mind? We say that all the time, and we think, why did I just do what I did? Why did I make that statement I just made? We don't even understand ourselves, but let me tell you something. He knows you intimately. He knows why. We may be a puzzle even to ourselves, but you are no puzzle to God. He knows you, and he knows you intimately. And so God hears their groans, and he is cognizant of his promise to them and, and what they are going through, and he sees their condition, and he knows about them intimately. Now, I'm setting up because we're going to step now into chapter 3. So with all that in mind, you're coming into chapter 3 to what probably outside of Maybe the crossing of the Red Sea, I really think this probably is more associated with uh, the book of Exodus than anything else, and that is the burning bush. Now, you're going to discover into chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit keeps changing positions here. You're, you're going to be here now in, in, in Egypt with a Pharaoh that just now dies, and then you're going to shift back to Moses, and then it's as if, you know, let's go back to what's happening at the ranch and you're going back to Egypt, and then you're going to shift back to Moses. So you're going to have this play back and forth. You're going to see what's going on in Egypt. You're going to see what's going on with Moses at the same time. So now you come to this, and what you're going to discover is that God's got Moses. You remember from last week, he's got him on the sideline. Sometimes God has to pull us out of the game, put us on the sideline, and when he puts us on the sideline, he does it for a purpose, and the purpose is for preparation to put us back into the game, and it's in that preparation that God will reveal something of himself to us. Now, you're going to see this over and over through the Old Testament, and you're certainly going to see it right here with Moses. God pulls him off to the side, to the sideline. He's got him there. And he's on the sideline, listen, for 40 years. Not for just a quarter, not for just a half, not just for one game. He's pulled him off now for 40 years. And the big question is, is why does God set a man aside in his 40s, in his 50s, in his 60s? Why does God pull him off at the most productive time of a man's life? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with Moses' attitude. It takes 40 years to get Moses out of Moses. Now, the Lord may have you on the sideline right now. 
What I want you to know from that, now we've already looked at that, what I want you to understand is that this is a time of preparation. And the preparation is this, for God to put you back into service, but to put you back into service after he has given you a revelation of himself. Now Moses writes this. Let me just pick it up in verse 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro. Don't confuse him with the Bodine. His father-in-law, there are three of y'all old enough in here to know what I'm talking about, the priest of Midian, and he took the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. Now, Moses writes all of this. I have absolutely, I, I shared, Deb and I shared, we were sharing with a, with a young Jewish guy this week, uh, a young German Jew this week, and um, talking about the first five books of Moses because I put in his hand uh, the book that I had written, The God You've Been Searching For. And uh, I told him, I said, most of that's going to come out of the book of Isaiah. And he says, I, you know, I know Isaiah, he didn't even, his name was Joshua, and had no idea what his name, jo and I said, have you been bar mitzvahed? And he said, yes, I was bar mitzvahed, but he had no idea what his name Joshua, I said, your name is the New Testament name Jesus. <laughs> uh, boy, what an open door to share with somebody. Well, you come to the, all he knew was the Pentateuch, all he knew was the first five books of Moses. Now, I believe Moses wrote these five books. Now, the interesting thing to me is this. As Moses writes this himself, he never mentions the 40 years in the wilderness. He never tells us one event that takes place until this event happens. He never says, for 40 years I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and this happened to me, and that happened to me. He never talks. He had 40 years that basically to him, it was an essentially a waste of life. This man, with tremendous education, he was the high prince of Egypt. For 40 years, he's been watching sheep. For 40 years, he's been babysitting sheep. And he never mentions anything about it as if to say, for the last 40 years, nothing significant has happened in my life at all. And you come to chapter 3, and you're coming. Now you're coming to the call of God on Moses' life at 80 years of age. When he's 80. And some of y'all are in your 50s and you've already thought this is the time just to quit working in the house of God. Or you're in your 60s, now's the time to give it up. Now's the time to stop. He's 80 years old before he answers the call of God on his life. Now I admit, he, he's a little better shape than most of us in here. But anyway, he's 80 years of age. It takes him until he's 80. Don't ever stop praying for your kids. They may be 40. They may be 80. You may be long gone to heaven. But don't stop praying for them. God will reach them at some point in time. His word will not return void to him. So he's going to go now, and he's out now in the Sinai, and God's going to reveal himself to him. And he's going to do it in two ways, or two things here. One, you're going to see the angel of the Lord, and secondly, you're going to see this whole thing of fire. God reveals himself in the angel of the Lord, 
and he reveals himself in fire. Now, the interesting thing is that God oftentimes reveals himself in the midst of fire. They're going to get to Mount Sinai. They're going to get to Mount Horeb, and there at Mount Horeb, God's going to reveal himself how? Fire, smoke, lightning. Um, you, you get on into the Word of God, and you discover that God does that a number of times. When they begin to follow Him in the wilderness, how is He going to appear to them? In a cloud, in a column, or, or in a pillar of fire. Over and over, you see this uh, in, with God. through Scripture. Solomon dedicates the temple, and on the day he dedicates the temple, fire falls out of heaven onto the altar, and the smoke is so thick that the priest can't go up. The presence of God is so thick. It's pictured as smoke. They can't go up into the temple. You see that again at uh, Mount Carmel with Elijah. When Elijah prays and fire falls out of heaven onto that uh, altar, onto that sacrifice that is there. You're going to see that again in Scripture. Uh, You're going to get to the end of the book of Revelation and after the thousand-year reign of Christ here on this earth, Satan is let loose again, and he gathers Gog and Magog, and he pulls them down in around the city of Jerusalem, and the Bible says that fire falls out of heaven and consumes them all, and that's it. That's, that's done then. It's all over. And so God now reveals himself here is as this angel of the Lord and in this burning fire. What does that represent? What does that say to us? He appears to him. The word there appeared. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire. The word means to make visible. God makes himself visible in that fire in the midst of this burning bush. Now, there are two things I think I want to say to you about this. Just two things. And I want you to see this. Number one, I want you to understand that the Lord appears in the midst of our lives. When He appears in the midst of that bush, I think the presence of God is seen in the midst of life. Now look at this. The angel of the Lord, verse 2, appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Now let me show you a bush out in the Sinai. I've had the chance to go through the Sinai. There it is. Y'all see it? It's hard to see. You have to really look. Here, here, is the bu- here is a bush out of the Sinai. Now, you see that. Now, most of the Sinai is just desert, just the sand. You'll see a little bit of what I guess you could call grass. And then you come across one of these things right here. Sometimes you'll come across a shatim tree. Uh, every once in a while, they're not very big. Um, they're, they're spindly. But there's the bush. Now, uh, let me show you what that bush is made of. You don't go up and grab these things. You see that? The thistles, the thorns there. That's what those bushes are made out of. Now, does that remind you of anything? All I heard was a... What does that remind you of? Oh, okay. All right. Well, let me go the other way in Scripture, okay? Let me go back to Genesis chapter 3. After man has rebelled against God, disobeyed God, sinned, listen to what God says to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Right there. What is that? The curse. It is a picture of a fallen world. It is a picture of the curse on fallen humanity. This is what has happened now because man has sinned. And here is God and he comes down in the angel of the Lord. And as he comes down into a bush, he comes down into a bush made up of all all of those thorns and thistles. Listen, listen, listen. He comes and he says, in the midst of your fallenness, I am here. In the midst of your failure, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of the sorriness of your life and what you've made out of it because you've chosen to sin, God comes and he says, I'm right there in the midst of your life, as sinful as it is. Somebody here this morning, you need to hear that. You're you're trapped, you're in bondage just as these Hebrews were down in Egypt to some sin in your life. And you need to know and you need to understand that God cares so much about you that He's willing to come down into the midst of your mess because He cares for you. And not only does He care for you like Moses, He wants to use you. He's got something for you to do. Your life is not wasted. Moses must have felt like after 40 years on the backside of this desert with all that I had been given, all that was poured into me, all that I was set up to do as a prince of Egypt, the last 40 years have just been a waste of life until God appears to him in the midst of something that speaks of his fallenness. And God is saying to him, listen, In the midst of this, I'm with you. Number two, the second thing is this. Not just the presence of God in the midst of life, but the purity of God that changes life. Fire represents purity. It speaks of purity. You you, you can find it all through Scripture. And I think Moses draws on this personally himself. You get over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. He's giving the law uh, for the second time now. He's giving the law the second time to the children of that generation that passed away in the wilderness. Now you've got all of this new generation that's going to go into the promised land. And so you come, Deuteronomos means literally second law. He's given the law a second time. And he comes and he says, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace of Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. That's chapter 4, verse 20 of Deuteronomy. He's telling them, listen, God's brought you out of the fire. Uh, He's already told Moses, listen, Moses, I'm right here in the midst of this with you. I'm in the midst of this fire that is your life right now. He was telling these Hebrews, listen, when you were there in slavery, I was right there just like he does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's there in the midst of the fire with them. But more of what God is saying here is this, is Moses, I am the God that comes to purify your heart. I'm the God that comes to purify your life. I'm the God that comes to purify all your intentions and all of your motives. I'm a God that is holy. I'm a God that is consuming fire. 
all through Scripture, we're see, we see God in that way. You get all the way, listen, you go through all of Scripture, you even get to, you just, you just get to the book of Revelation. What does John see? He says, I saw him talking about the resurrected Christ. He says he's got eyes like, like flames of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze in, in a furnace. That means they are glowing red hot from the fire. God is oftentimes spoken of as a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, Deuteronomy chapter, somebody help the, help the old preacher. Um, Deuteronomy in Hebrews. God is a consuming fire. He says it twice, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. And so he's there, Moses is there before a God who has come to show him. Now listen. He shows him first who he is before he ever tells him who he is. He's going to tell him who he is. He's going to give him that name. We're going to look at this a little further, a little later on. He's going to give him that name there at the burning bush, but he's going to show him first. He's going to be visual. He's going to give him a picture of who he is. Now listen, why does God do this? What is God doing there in the fire. What is he trying to do in that bush that burns but is not consumed? What's he doing there? He wants Moses to catch a glimpse of his glory. I think God wants that for all of us. I think that's a lot of times why God pulls us out of things and puts us on the sideline is that he wants to reveal just a little bit of his glory to us. Now let me tell you, you just walk through scripture and you see it. Jacob running from Esau Having been told by his mom and dad, you got to get out of here. Your brother will kill you if you don't get out of here. Running out into the wilderness, lies down, goes to sleep, and God gives him that tremendous vision of a ladder that's set on the earth, stretches up into the heavens, angels ascending and descending, and at the very top of it, there's the glory of God. Isaiah walks into the temple. He walks into church, and as he walks into church, he sees in the midst of his grief, he's weeping for Uzziah, the king that has died. We believe that Isaiah was part of the royal family, that he was re related to the king, and that there was great love in his heart for Uzziah. And Uzziah had been, for the most part, a really great king. And Isaiah is weeping over that. And he walks into church, and what does he see? He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees a little bit of the glory of God. Uh, you see that with Paul. Paul gets on the road to Damascus, and the resurrected Christ appears to him in this blinding light. He catches just a glimpse. He cries out, who are you? The Lord says, Paul, Saul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he tells him, I'm Jesus Christ. I'm the resurrected Christ. And there, on that road to Damascus, he falls down. You see the same thing with John in Revelation chapter 1. And in Revelation chapter 1, there's the appearance of the resurrected Christ. And he catches a glimpse. They all catch a glimpse of the glory of God just a little bit. Why does God want to show him his glory? Why does God, before he ever speaks to Moses, show him just a little bit of his glory in that burning bush? Because he desires worship. Worship. What does he say to Moses? 
Hold up right there, bud. That's a loose translation. Don't come any closer and get those shoes off your feet because the ground that you're on is holy ground. In other words, worship. And what does Moses do? The Bible says that Moses covers his eyes because he fears to look at God. Worship. Fear now has gripped his heart. You walk into worship, not in some high, great fit of laughter. You walk into the presence of God in awe and reverence. You come before majesty, not in silliness. You come before majesty in awe and fear. He wants Moses to worship because in worship, what happens? The work of sanctification of changing your heart begins to happen. Look at Isaiah. What does Isaiah do? Isaiah says, I fell on my knees and I began to confess my sin. Oh, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. What does Paul do? Paul falls on his knees. He's blinded. He spends the next three days doing what? Just praying. John does what? He falls on his knees before that resurrected Christ. He said, I fell on my knees as if I were a dead man. And the Lord had to reach down and touch him and pull him back up. But do you know what? Do you know what happens? Let me just get to the punchline here. Do you know what happens in every one of these cases? God assigns them a task now. They've been on the sideline, and he assigns them now a task to do. Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh for me. Isaiah hears God say, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And God sends Isaiah. You get to Paul, Paul now three days blind, and he sends Ananias in to pray over him. And Ananias says, Lord Jesus, do you know who this is that I got? You want me to go in? This is God that's killing everybody. You want me to go lay hands on him? And the Lord says, go lay hands on him. He's going to become my mouth to the Gentiles and to the house of Israel and to kings. John, who's fallen down as a dead man, the Lord puts his hand on him, gets him up and says, now start writing. Every one of these men had been sidelined. And every one of them catches a glimpse of the glory of God. And in the midst of that, they begin to worship. Their heart is changed. God begins to change their heart. And then God does what? Gives them an assignment to do. Let me tell you something. Every single, I just start going around here if I could call everybody's name and just call your name and say, listen, this is a word for you. For every one of us. If you've never been on the sideline and caught a glimpse of the glory of God, that may be why God's pulled you off and onto the sideline now. So that you'll come to the place where the most important thing in your life is not all the things that you do and all the things that you have, but the worship of Almighty God. And in the midst of that worship, He begins to transform your heart. And what God is wanting out of Moses, and we're going to see later, is that God is wanting Moses to become like Him. Who is this angel of the Lord in the bush? Now, if you notice, did you all read that carefully? The bush is not actually burning. It is the angel of the Lord in the bush that is burning. Read the text. 
It's the angel of the Lord. Who is this angel of the Lord? He's the same one who wants us to have a heart like his heart. We'll see. Just hang on. We'll see. He wants our heart to be changed to be like his heart. I'm, I'm reading a series of four books right now on early English history, and I finished. Uh, I, I read the third one first before I knew that there were others, and I've gone back now and I've picked up the first one, The Conquering Family. It's about Henry II. Henry II has several sons. One happens to be a kid by the name of Richard who becomes known as Richard the Lionhearted. He has a brother also by the name of John who will become king after Richard is shot on April the 6th, 1199. Richard the Lionhearted at 41 years of age is shot in the shoulder um, at, the, um, at the castle of uh, Calus uh, in France. At the castle of Calus, some guy just shot and it hit um, Richard right in the shoulder. Now, it was not, as some have speculated, poisoned. Most likely, Richard died of gangrene or sepsis. Uh, but when he died, they did with a king what they would often do. They took out his viscera. They took out his, this right here, and they buried it right there where he died at the valley of Kalu, uh, at the castle of Kalu. Then they took his body and they took certain other parts because they would take parts off of these, uh, the, off of these kings and bury them in different cathedrals, by the way. They buried his body, the main part of his body, they buried him back by Henry II, his father, but they took his heart. And they took his heart and they injected it with things like frankincense and mint and uh, oak uh, dust and uh, a whole list of things they injected into his heart. They know that because of, uh, of stories that were told and they know it because his heart was exhumed eight centuries later. Sometime around the year 2000, they exhumed the heart of uh, Richard the Lionhearted, and they exhumed it at the cathedral in Rouen in France, where it was buried next to another king there. They exhumed it, and they discovered that they had injected. Now, I'll tell you why. You say, why did they do that? Why did they take his heart and inject it? They wanted to preserve it. They wanted to mummify it. But the real reason was because they believed that all of these spices would give the heart of Richard the aroma of Christ. Now let me tell you something. I don't care what you put in your heart, what you feed your heart, what they inject in your heart. The only way you begin to have the heart like Jesus is by coming to Jesus Christ. It's not all that we do. It's what he's done that will begin to change our heart. Let's stand and pray about that. You know, so many times we've got so many ideas and so many thoughts and so many wishes and so many desires that are wrapped up in our heart. But I want to tell you something, that if your heart doesn't belong to Jesus Christ, there's nothing else you can put in it or wrap it around that will ever make it like Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, let me tell you about the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus was this. 
is that he went to a cross to die for you personally, for your sin, for your faults. And you've come now just like Moses to a moment of decision. You've got to make a decision. What will I do for the rest of my life? Continue in the failure and the sin and the misery and the unhappiness that I am currently in? Or am I going to come and put my faith and my trust in the one who literally can change my heart and make it like his? Who will forgive me and receive me and give me grace and mercy? Who will love me and has loved me and will love me to the end of time and beyond. I invite you to come to Jesus today. I invite you to come and say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to give my heart. I want to give everything that I am to Jesus Christ. I want to put my faith and my trust in Him. This morning, if that's your wish and that's your desire, I'm going to be standing right here at the front, at the end of these steps, the bottom of these steps and I'm standing right there and I'm waiting for you. I want you to come. Others of you need to come and put your life in the life of this congregation. Become a part of this fellowship. Be a part of this church. But for the rest of the church this morning, I want to call you to something today. I want to call you to the altar. I want you to come down. And I want you to come down this morning if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're already a part of this congregation. I want you to come and pray for this afternoon and for our community and for every family, every child, every mom and dad that's represented. I want you to come and pray that God in some way would speak through us, speak through our smile, speak through our words, speak through our lives and would call them to come to Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Would you even do that right now? Would you begin to come? Would you just slip out and come and let's begin to pray for our community, for the place that God has placed us, wed us to, for these that uh, live in this community who don't know Jesus Christ, who are not part of a church. You come. These are coming. I'm inviting you to come. Find a place and just kneel. Or if you can't kneel, just stand. But if you're here this morning and there's a decision to be made, Would you come, Father, in these moments as we come seriously to pray and to seek your face? I pray, Lord Jesus, for those that need to come and the decision that needs to be made. For I pray it in Jesus' name. You come as God speaks. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.